Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. O oh God and our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and nearest kinsman and redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Here today, we're asking the question, we're going to consider God's word to the question, why are you saved? In a recent article on the Theopolis Institute webpage, Jim Pachta said this, In a few hundred years, we have changed identity from I think, therefore I am, to I feel, therefore I am, to I desire, therefore I am, Two, I demand you to see me for what I am today. We thought to be, felt to be, desired to be, and now demand to be. Now, you can hear that and say, what does that have to do with my salvation? But I think it's important that we consider the state of the world. You see, the world is a reflection of the state of the church. The world will never be more righteous, more right, than the church. As it relates to salvation, the church today, broadly speaking, has embraced a very individualistic view of salvation and what it means to be the individual person. The revivalist approach of salvation that developed during the last two centuries of the American church has focused on the individual without much of an understanding of God's covenant to us as God's people and what we have been created to do. Last week on Trinity Sunday, you may recall that we considered what we learn about ourselves in studying the triune God. To quote a part of the sermon last week, the relationship Yahweh sustains within the Godhead that exists in the persons of the Godhead as revealed in the scriptures enables us to understand what personal relationships mean and how they work. There is an intimate fellowship in love and this exists without any loss of the distinctive persons of the Godhead. There is perfect unity and yet a distinctive personhood between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because we are made in the image of God, we too understand that we are created as distinct individuals that will not be annihilated by union with God and one another, assuming our relationships are ordered correctly, that is to say, biblically. Salvation is not bland unanimity. In salvation, you are made more fully and truly who you were created to be. When we grow in godliness, we grow in unity with one another, but we do not lose our God-given individuality. I only bring that up as a little bit of a frame as we, as we come in, and I know maybe there's a lot packed in there. We could preach a whole sermon right off of this, right? And after all, that's what I did last week. Um, but, but if you're wondering, if you, if you want to think about that further, go back and, and listen uh, on one of the, uh, the media platforms that we have. But I think it's important that we remember this, this line. In salvation, you are made more fully and truly who you were created to be. 
You see, before the fall, God gave instruction and direction. We're going to talk about this further. But then through sin and disobedience, we come to a place where we cannot be or do what God has created us to do. But in salvation, we now have the ability. God has made us right, given us a heart of flesh, taken away the heart of stone, and His Spirit enables us in order to complete the task that God has given us. R.J. Rushduni, in one of his lectures on de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, comments this way. Think about this now just for a second. De Tocqueville says this, and then goes on with a, and it goes this, he says, uh, with a, he does a study in individualism. And here's the quote. Now this is a very interesting point that the translator, okay, of Democracy in America, found it necessary here at this point to add a footnote explaining what the word individualism means, pointing out that it was a word unfamiliar with Americans. And that instead of trying to find a word to translate it, since he had none, he was simply going to use the French word individualism in English. Now this may seem surprising, that prior to de Tocqueville, we had no such word as individualism. No, we did not. We had come to think of individualism as something highly American, or we have come to think of this in this way, as something that always existed. But we find that de Tocqueville more or less coined a French word and has now become a very accepted one. Now the Enlightenment and the French Revolution drove Rousseau's works as well as Kant's views in developing a transcendental aesthetic. That is to say, it pushes the ideas that the individual and his or her perspectives define space, time, and a person's very existence. These ideas played out first in Europe and then here in the United States. And you may be asking again, what does this have to do with my salvation or the salvation of others in the church? Bear with me. Rush Dooney shows that de Tocqueville in his 1830s analysis of America, and if you don't know the story behind it, he, he goes, he's supposed to come to the United States, he's an ambassador, and he takes his tour, grand tour around the United States, and he writes it all down, he puts down his thoughts. It's a very good read. But it says this, Christianity in America is pragmatically helpful in furthering a better life on earth, whereas in Europe, listen now, the churches are inclined to be otherworldly. What does he mean by that? They talk more about heaven than about earth. In America, listen now, in America the message of the church is more concerned with life here and our duties here and now than with heaven. Think about that. We all know, if you, if, if you know anything about missions in the world today, Europe has fallen away from the church, from God, in a very serious way. On any given Sunday in Great Britain, you can find less than 4%, less than 4% of people in Great Britain in a church. What happened? Well, Europe embraced these ideas... And I think we can now see it ourselves here where the emphasis is on heaven and not 
in what we are to do here. But you see, salvation in God is about our life here and our duties here. And yes, heaven does become part of it. One more quote from Rush Dooney. We might add parenthetically that the reason that American churches had this view was that most American churches at the time had a post-millennial emphasis in their American faith. Now, I know some of you are going, post-millennialism, what is that? Well, we can get into that in some great detail. I'm going to cover it a little bit today, but we'll be doing a Sunday school series in the fall discussing that. But the reality of it is, in a short and succinct way, that is to say that the church is called to fulfill the, the mission of taking dominion, being fruitful and multiplying, and discipling all the nations. It's not about escaping out when there's a time of persecution. There has been a real emphasis in our churches to divine salvation as an individual person being saved from hell to heaven. This is true in one sense, but it is a real failure to understand the whole of Scripture. Satan is attempting to neutralize the church by having the focus of Christians to be set merely on heaven and how to get there and neglecting what we have been created for and in Christ. And in Christ we are being reconciled to God the Father and now by the Spirit we are able to complete the task that we have been created for. Our sermon text today, and I know that was a long introduction, but I feel like I have to set it up for us to help us think about what the issues are here. Our sermon text is Matthew 28, beginning with verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. The, the passage here is commonly known as the Great Commission. It is often seen in many churches as a new narrative or direction for people, or more specifically, the Christian people. But this is not so. It is not a new directive. Let us consider this passage a little bit. First of all, it is our commission. But it starts out with all authority. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says this, Therefore we also, since, are, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and here it is, people, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is king over all things in this life and the next. But it is important to realize that these two places, this life and the next, do not simply exist as two places, but at the resurrection they will be reunited as one place with no veil or firmament separating heaven, that is the throne room of God, and earth, the place of the nations. We have this, this 
way of thinking, I think we've been trained this way in the church, to think about here we are in the earth, we're sinners, we need Christ's forgiveness, we need to be reconciled to God, and that's all true, and we think that is so that we can be saved simply to not go to hell so we can go to heaven. Because we think that Jesus is king certainly of the next place, but not so much here. That is not so. Let us consider what it says in Revelation 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with them, and he will dwell with them. Hear this now, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. In John 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her, that is Mary Magdalene, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, that is, gone to the throne. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. What you see there in Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of all the promises where there is no more veil between heaven and earth. Heaven itself comes down to the earth. All things will be fulfilled on the earth. If we look again in Revelation 20, 21, beginning at verse 22, it says this, But I saw no temple in it. And remember, the temple is the imagery of the Garden of Eden, the place where God meets man. So there's no longer a temple need. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is the light, and the nations, the what? The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor to it. Its gates shall not be shut up all day by day. There shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations to it. Again, if we consider how these fit together, we see that this is a restoration of the garden. Revelation 22, verse 1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river, there was what? A tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Listen to this. The leaves of the tree were for what? The healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. As we consider these verses in Revelation, we see the making of all things right from the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. We see the restoration. God created the world, and He said that it was good. He set, and think about this now, He set the sun and the moon up to rule the day, to rule the night. And all other authorities 
are gone. There's nothing else to point to the light of God because God is with them. So at the very end of time, it is a restoration of the earth and created order. Secondly, we are to make disciples. That Matthew 28 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That word therefore there means to pursue a journey on which one has entered. When we come to Christ, we are saved so that we may go on the journey that God has placed us in. And we need to pursue that journey. We are to make disciples. That is, a disciple is a person who follows his teacher's precepts and instructions. That is, the Christ life, following the Father's commands so that others may be reconciled to the Father, that they may be fruitful in dominion as Christ is. Christ is in dominion over all things. And you say, but why is there evil in the world? Why is there war? Why are these things? Well, the scriptures teach us that God is not slow as some of us understand. It is his kindness that brings us to repentance. You know, if you've been studying with us in Psalms, we're only on, on chapter 7, but over and over again there is this cry out for justice, and there's always this call of repentance going on there. Always a call of repentance. God is at work to see that all the nations are discipled. And of course, he says this, when you make these disciples, you are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That is to say, to enter a covenant with Yahweh, the triune God. Genesis 17, 7 says this, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Again, in chapter 7 and verse 10, or 17, verse 10 of Genesis, it says this, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Now, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, we get clarity on understanding entering this covenant. And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Listen now, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now the idea here is, is that baptism is not a one-to-one, -one, but baptism is a replacement of circumcision. And it's done not by man, but the heart is changed by God. But it is done in the triune God. Now it's important that we understand covenants, the way God puts forth covenants, is to peoples, not to individuals. This is why oftentimes when I send you an email, I call you the people of God. We are the people of God. Are you an individual? Yes. Do you lose your distinctiveness? No. But we are covenantally the people of God. Why do we come in here and pray a prayer of confession as a group? It is because we are the people of God. 
and all of us are linked together, right? My sin affects you. Your sin affects the people in the rows around you. We are the covenant people of God. That didn't change because of Christ. It isn't a new covenant in the sense of everything has wiped away, but it is simply a new covenant by the fact that it was completed by Christ. Again, if we look at this command out of Matthew 28, it says, Teach them all I have commanded. This word teach, the Greek word is diasko, that is to hold a discourse with others in order to instruct them to deliver didactic discourses. Now this is interesting. Why do we teach them? We teach them so that they are to observe, that is to take care of, to keep, to observe, to reserve, to undergo all that I have commanded. Now this word commanded is interesting because we can see it as an order or a command. Those of you that have served in the military understand that. Or perhaps you had a strict mother and when she commanded, you jumped up and after it. But it is more than that. This word commanded also means to be enjoined. You see, when God asks us to do something, when Christ says, follow me, he really means follow me. I'm going to be, this is Christ, saying, I'm going to obey my Father. I'm going to enjoy myself to the directives of God, the Father. And I want you to follow me. So when these commandments that I give, these are about being enjoined to me and being enjoined to do the things of God. What has God commanded or instructed us to do? If God's plan is to restore men and all of creation... We should look back to the first commands given by God to Adam. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. Now this is important. When God creates man in his own image, his own image has dominion. And what does he do with his dominion? He divides and he fills. You can look at that in creation and you can look at that in all that he does. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on earth. So we are to be fruitful, we are to multiply, we are to fill, we are to take the earth and the world in submission to this. Part of what I want to tell you, people of God here today, is that whatever position and role you have in life, you are to take dominion of it, to subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill it. We're going to take just a minute and explain that, but I want to point out something to you here. He says all these things. He gives this command, and he says, I am with you. It is important that we recognize that there's a command to worship because he doesn't just simply put us out there and say, do all these things. This is inside of 
Remember that in joining to the commands. This is inside of worshiping God. Genesis 2.8, the Lord God planted the garden eastward and in Eden, and there he put, up, uh, put the man whom he'd formed. And in verse Genesis 3.8, and they heard the sound of, the, of Yahweh, God, talking or walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh among the trees of the garden. Now what was happening? Yahweh was coming on the scene, and they were going to worship Yahweh. That's what he was there for, but they had fallen into sin. The first five books of the Bible give us many instructions in the way to worship God. We can certainly consider what it says in Deuteronomy 5. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He's pulled them out of bondage, out of sin, out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or likeness or, any, or of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. And it's so interesting when we think about this. What things pull us away? What things are we worshiping instead of God? Are we worshiping science? Are we worshiping our own will, our own desires? We are saved so that we may... Be fruitful and multiply in our work, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships to our parents, to the people in this room. Everywhere you go, you are called to be fruitful and multiply, to take dominion in those areas. I want us to consider this in Acts chapter 19. It says this, and he said to them, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were coming out of baptism. Because he said, Into whom were you baptized? In to John's baptism, into repentance, where we go in to baptism, and then through the mighty resurrection, through the work of God, we come out of that baptism to do a work. Our salvation is to be fruitful and multiply. Yes, sometimes through our own children, but also in our relationships. Every last one of them. What else does God command us to in short order? And we're going to go into some of these later on in coming weeks in some more detail. But he gives us the Lord's Supper. And he took the bread in Luke 22, it says, And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given to you or for you. Do this in memorial of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And we know that he told them, that they should do this to, to be memorialized by them and by God. Finally, I want to point this out to you all. We need to know that all of God's word instructs us. We know that in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is dealing with the temptations of Satan... It says this, but he that is Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth 
out of the mouth of God. That is Deuteronomy chapter 8, Jesus is quoting, which says this, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply. To do what? To live, to have life, to multiply, and to go and possess the land, that is, to take dominion over it, which the Lord, or that is Yahweh, swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that Yahweh your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Yahweh. And why does he tell us these commands? See, a lot of times we feel like the commands are constricting us, but they're not. They are bringing us life and giving us the ability to fulfill the command to multiply and take dominion. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that is all of us, may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. God wants us through the instructions and commands of his word to be equipped for what? For every good work. What are those good works? It's not simply this comparison of good works to bad works, but the good works of being fruitful, multiplying, taking dominion, and discipling the nations. Even Numbers and Leviticus or the Song of Solomon can teach us and instruct us so that we can be equipped. There are certainly specific laws in the scriptures, but these are often followed by principles derived by wisdom. And then finally, the applications of the laws and principles. To what end? To be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. We must study the commands of scripture not to be restricted but to live life abundantly. John 10.10 says, The thief, that is Satan, the devil, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Satan wants you to think of heaven and your Christian life as something out there and not a life in here full of fruitfulness and dominion in marriage, in parenting, in vocation, or in community. God saves us not simply to heaven or his presence, but that we, by virtue of being reconciled to the Father by the Son, empowered by the Spirit to fulfill God's plan, of all the nations being discipled. We want this so that we too can rejoice and see the true fulfillment from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 that says, For the earth will be filled. That is to say, it will happen. 
with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Let us pray. Our Father, we know that your hand is in all things and that you have brought about the things which we see that man may appreciate all the more your regenerating power when it is manifest. We look to you, O Lord, for the cleansing of the nations, of the churches, of all institutions by your sovereign grace. May we walk in gratitude for your perfect design for us in our daily lives. Grant us faithfulness to your word in all areas of our lives so that we may be fruitful in discipling the nations and truly taking and subduing all things to your glory. Amen.